Hello and welcome to the TBG Real Estate Podcast, where we connect you with some of the most innovative and exciting real estate leaders today. We will show you that there are numerous paths to a successful career in the real estate industry, and that some of your greatest missteps can be turned into your greatest triumphs. Without further ado, here's the head of TBG Real Estate, Chris Papa. All right, folks, welcome to this episode of the TBG Real Estate Podcast. I am your host, Chris Papa. And today we got a very special guest, Mr. David Ginsberg. David is a VP with Win Companies. How you doing, David? Doing great. How you doing, Chris? I'm great. How are things in New Jersey today? Things are great. Uh, we, you know, obviously pandemic impacting everyone in the country, and then. We were uh, we were particularly hard hit last week with uh, the storm that came through. So nothing like a, a pandemic, which makes you be in your house and then you have no <laughs> electricity in your house. So yeah, you, you lose your office and you lose your house in in that instance. But all things considered, with the things going on in the world, doing great. That's great. So I'm yeah. Today is August 11th, um, 2020. I am in San Mateo, and you are in uh, Northern New Jersey. Yep, Maplewood, New Jersey. Maplewood, New Jersey. And you said that you moved there to have a good commute to the city, to your office, but you got an even better commute by just sitting in your kitchen, right? That's right. Yeah. No, luckily we have uh, we have enough space to have a home office here, which, yeah, I, I haven't been to the New York City wind development office since February, and I'm uh, really hoping I didn't leave a lunch out on the table, but <laughs> I yeah. was expecting to go back in the next day and obviously things uh, went to hell in a handbasket. Do you guys have a plan going back? Because we just opened our, our, our office on 40th and Broadway. We've got a pretty big office. Um, so we probably have like a hundred plus people there generally. Now we're going in like shifts, like half, I don't know about half, maybe a quarter or whatever. So like Tuesday, Thursday, Monday, Wednesday, do you have, have any plan? So, uh, yeah, so our corporate headquarters is is in Boston, and they've, you know, similar a couple hundred couple hundred people. They've been doing shifts, a uh, couple of days on, a couple of days off shifts of getting people in and out. I think I think they're realizing the elevators end up being the biggest challenge on things. Yeah. In the New York City office, we're a small office, so at this point, we're all working from home, and quite frankly, it's you know we all commute on trains in. So until folks really feel comfortable riding the train back in and out of the city, uh, I think that's going to be the the biggest factor. But you know, luckily everyone's everyone's learning to work from where they can, their kitchen, their bedroom, wherever, yeah. uh, closets, <laughs> home offices. So yeah, why don't we uh, transition? Why don't you tell us about Wind Companies? You, it's based in Boston, but you're in in New York, and uh, how'd that happen? Tell me about yeah. what Wind and what you guys do. Yeah, so Win Companies is a almost fifty-year-old uh, family-owned uh, development company founded by Arthur Win, uh, now run by his son, predominantly run by his son Gilbert Win, who's our CEO. Uh, company's broken up into three arms. We have a third-party management arm under the Win Residential uh, name and umbrella. So we manage about a uh, hundred and five thousand units nationwide. Uh, one of the I think we're the largest manager of affordable housing in the country. Um, one of the largest managers of multifamily residential overall. Uh, then we have a, a military, uh, Win Military, which is our military management uh, arm, which manages, I think we're the second largest manager of uh, privatized military housing. Huge portfolio as well. Um, not really my specialty, but mm. really cool. Manage places like Fort Drum, Fort Hood. Um, 
it's those are good contract. You don't even think about that in real estate, right? Like the military, yeah, must be good contracts to get. And really interesting stuff. I mean, I went, I had the opportunity to go down to uh, the Fort Hood this year, and it's like it's not even just a city on itself. It's like a small state. I mean, especially with the the security requirements to get in and out. Um, there's there's literally grocery stores, hardware stores. It's like managing a a small metropolis. So, oh, wow. so those are two two parts of the of the wind umbrella. And then I, I work for Wind Development, which is our development arm, um, predominantly East Coast, but we've got some ventures throughout the country. Uh, we're, I'd say, largely a tax credit developer. Uh, Low income housing tax credits, historic tax credits are probably our two biggest specialties. But uh, doing more and more new construction, doing more and more. Uh, call it mixed income housing, market rate housing, workforce housing. So a little bit of everything. And then uh, my office out of the New York City Regional Office, uh, I oversee our development efforts in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut um, under the our, our president of the development companies, Larry Curtis. So uh, we've been uh, we've been busy and doing quite a bit. And, uh, and it's a national scope. And then we uh, predominantly on the development side on the eastern seaboard. So when you develop affordable housing, tax credit development, new market tax credit like how does that work like what is are you doing you said there's some new development are you doing are you going in and like finding old buildings in brooklyn or something and then converting yeah, them well, and so like tell me about how that the process it's, i know it's a pretty yeah i'd say different. every deal has its own pretty unique process and there's i, I could give you a you know a a two hour anecdote on each and every deal because just how unique and fun. <laughs> go, we'll have, I'm we'll ready. The fir- Let's the go. The first ever 24 uh, hour podcast about uh, affordable housing. Let's see, <laughs> see how many people make it to the end. But, uh, you know, it's honestly, we, we like to do, we, it starts by the right property and the right, the right deal. So in the historic space, we, we've done a lot of mill conversions, uh, a lot of school conversions. We love beautiful school buildings. Uh, we did a, a we're wrapping up a project in East Haven, Connecticut, which was an old high school that's been empty for 20 years. Uh, but the, you know, so the you form- find a high school like that and do you have to get, sorry to cut you off there. Um, no you find a high school or somebody does and or a school and say, this was, I can see housing in here. Right. And then how do you get it to be a f- certified or, or as affordable? And then you have to go to like the town and say, Hey, can we convert this school yeah, and yeah, yeah. affordable housing? And do you have to like, what's the process there? No, it's a pretty complicated process. And it's, and I'd say to your other point of where do you like to, what, what starts off this process? We like to do business in places that want us to do business there, quite frankly. So that's, you know, and that starts at the state level. There's certain states that uh, have the financial resources, supported loan programs, tax credit initiatives at the state level that, make doing real estate development in the affordable space or workforce space feasible. So it's, it all comes down to financial feasibility because these projects, whether new construction or historic adaptive reuse are, are certainly expensive just by virtue of being affordable housing doesn't make, make building the building or creating the project any cheaper. So it's, it's working in places that we know are going to be welcoming and then crafting the development scenario that fits the local politics, the state politics, the capital stack. So, you know, they're from senior housing to family housing from, is this going to be all affordable or can this support some mixed income or market rate housing? Uh, is this going to be a 4% tax credit deal or a 9% tax credit deal? What kind of subsidies are you going to chase? So it's, it's, uh, I'd say it's definitely a, an art and a science, probably not just one or the other, but it's, you know, 
finding the location, finding the buildings, and then ultimately having the local and state support to, uh, to make the capital stack happen. And so there's, excuse my ignorance, but I know I am familiar with tax credits. Is, is that the same kind of tax credit you get when you're buying a tax credit building? Are there different ones like that are designated strictly for development? Yeah. So there's, I mean, the low income housing tax or the historic tax credit program and the low income housing tax credit program are the two that we probably utilize the most. Uh, there's, you mentioned the new markets program before we've done a couple of new market tax credit deals, um, in Lowell, Massachusetts and in Rochester, New York. Um, those are, you know, extremely complicated deals, typically more for a mixed use with some commercial component, but usually we're using the low income housing tax credits, um, and historic tax credits and the, the, the low income housing tax credits, uh, there's effectively two different types of tax credits, either your 4%, quote unquote, as of right tax credits, which not necessarily as of right, but that give or take cover about 30% of your project costs, um, depending on basis, depending on you get some, there's some bonuses for being in certain census tracts. And then there's the highly competitive 9% low income housing tax credits which are allocated state, each state has a certain amount and they come up with a funding plan um, where they prioritize different things in different states. Uh, it's really like it, most states view it almost as a, a, a funding allocation plan and it'll prioritize things like access to transportation or uh, building, you know, not near things like uh, landfills or nuclear plants, uh, or you'll see uh, priorities for being in a high-performing school district. So there's sort of two different things, the the 4% program, which you then need to find other resources to fill the capital stack, or you apply for these highly competitive 9% resources. So back to your your original question of where do we look, We sometimes the, the simplest answer is we try to reverse engineer some of these priorities and focus on doing deals in, in regions or areas that we know are going to score well because again these are unbelievably competitive i mean one in ten projects getting funded in around and all all great projects with great merits with full political support there just aren't enough dollars in these tax credit programs to go around um as it currently stands there's some legislative changes that may help that but in general it's super competitive and you're competing against highly competent other Private development companies, nonprofit development companies, CDCs, public housing companies. Uh, housing why housing why would they choose you over a certain? Like, what makes not you particularly? But why do they choose one or the other? Is the project so, they like better? Or? Yeah, project. It's scoring again. It, they they literally lay out a, a a rubric that says this is what you're going to have to do, and you the highest scoring project wins. So you you know literally no stone unturned to get every point matters. We've We've lost funding rounds on deals that everybody loved uh, that, you know, I, I think we would all locally, statewide, would love to have attended a groundbreaking on. And we lost by one point or we've lost on a tiebreaker down to pennies on certain certain things. And it's it's just the nature of there. It, it's there's not an, there's not enough resources to fund every project. So they have to come up with some call it mechanism by which to allocate resources to certain areas, certain geographies. Um, and I think, you know, each, each state takes a different approach. We see wildly different scorings and priorities for New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. Um, you know, there's totally different uh, benefits for each one of them and totally different ways that they choose to select. And uh, so again, it's, 
really knowing you gotta you gotta do quite a bit of uh, know your audience uh, make sure you're you're ticking and tying every little thing that you can to make sure you maximize the competitiveness of each application so um, you know it, it, it's it's interesting because you you wanna you want to maximize a project from its political support and its community support and you design it to be as beneficial as possible and, uh, and work financially. But then at the end of the day, again, it could come down to uh, as simple as one point being uh, within a, a half mile of a train station. And if you're, uh, you know, three quarters of a mile, you don't get the point and the project could not get funded. So. Uh, and if you get that 4% and not the 9%, like what makes up the, wh where do you go to get that, make up that gap? So, yeah, Different, different stories for different deals, but in some instances, we like to layer the historic tax credits on to a 4% deal. Sometimes you're bringing in uh, historic tax credit equity can help plug that gap. And then for a lot of these transactions, it really comes down to state um, subordinate loan resources. So they'll have uh, low interest rate loans, 1% um, loans for typically they're allocated to different programming so middle income housing or new construction for supportive housing or veterans housing so you'll you'll see different loan programs established that uh help fill that gap and then obviously you have all your your traditional real estate sources you've got your debt and your equity but uh in terms of plugging in in the affordable world plugging that that gap often it's coming down to uh where where can you maximize state and local resource resource to come down local home funds um operational subsidies project-based vouchers um, things like that that let you drive your debt up and ultimately plug that gap because that's really what you're doing on these deals is you're you're trying to make a deal happen with rising costs rising land values rising operation expenses costs just every deal is harder and harder to do just because the costs are going up and Inherently in affordable housing, the rents are not necessarily going up. The rents are are what they are. So what's happening is that that gap is is ever growing and coming up with creative ways to plug that gap is really the name of the game. Why would a firm like Wynn develop affordable housing when it seems so difficult? When you could be developing <laughs> like class A apartment buildings where there's like you don't have to worry about it seems like you don't have to worry about all this stuff. Yeah, I mean there's I I can probably give you, you know, three different answers from different, it depends on which hat I was wearing. I mean, there's certainly a, there's a community benefit and socially minded aspect to it. Uh, Larry says we, we do well by doing good. So there's certainly that, that component of it. Um, and I think that then there's also just a, a uh, there's a high barrier to entry just because of how complicated this is and the application process going in. I mean, I, you can't see it behind me, but I have got binders with thousands and thousands of page applications, again, to, you know, scratch each and every one of those points off of a checklist. So there's there's not that many firms. There's some really high quality, competent firms, but there's not that, that many doing this. So um, if you're able to establish yourself as a win, as somebody who's got the, you know, there's not many firms with almost 50 years of experience doing affordable housing development and management. Um, that can can say that. So basically, once you're in the business with a, a a great reputation nationally and great reputation in the state to do business, it's it's that much easier to continue the momentum of doing more deals. Hmm. And then financially, there's just a it's a in some ways it's 
reverse real estate compared to what a typical pro forma or underwriting would look like uh, in terms of the way you look at returns. It's the returns are are very different in the affordable housing world um, relative to what you would see if you're looking to a, a yield on a new construction deal or if you're just buying an existing asset. So, uh, you know, a couple, a couple of different answers. And I think the the most apparent answer for us is we like doing it. We're good at doing it. We've got a track record of success. And we find that the states that we do business in want to have us do the next deal and the next deal. So we'll keep, we'll yeah. keep chasing them. I think it's fascinating all the different, yeah, like putting together the capital stack, like just how do you find all these little, you mentioned a bunch of different types of loans that I'd never heard of before. And it's just like, yeah, I mean, where do they come from? Like, where do you it's find not, these? Uh, it's not uncommon to have a capital stack. I mean, if, if I don't know if I've ever, if I've done a deal with less than six uh, sources in the capital, like that would be, that would be a quote unquote simple deal. I mean, more reasonable to deal with 10, 11, 12 sources in the deal. And that's again, the nature of, of these deals is being creative and, and, finding solutions for gap filling. And that can be looking at, again, local resources, county resources, state resources, federal resources. Um, there's there's a good amount of our job is uh, is being creative and, and finding ways to uh, come up with solutions to make these deals work. Nice. So let's talk about David a little bit. David Ginsburg, uh, you grew up, as you said earlier in New Jersey, did you come from a real estate family? Did you come from a family that did like affordable housing? Like where did not, interest come not from? in the least, not in the least. No, my, uh, my family, my grandfather actually owned a, a series of supermarkets in New Jersey. Oh, cool. um, so yeah, is we, his last name, uh, shop, right? No, his last name is no, we owned a, a food towns in New Jersey and, uh, nope. And we, we owned those for years. And, uh, my, my father then played poker. No, so no, we're not a real estate family <laughs> by any means. It's uh, it's not uh, it's not in my DNA necessarily. But no, I I think interest came from had a interest in always had an interest in called the built environment, uh, urban spaces, urban design. I I went to undergrad for originally for architecture and then switched to uh, urban studies at UC Berkeley. I've always had an interest in in space buildings, the connection between public policy, finance, and design. Mm -hmm. And uh, over time, um, got the opportunity to do some really cool study abroad programs where we looked at a lot of those things and, and how they interconnect and how they can create great places or not as great places or what the challenges in those spaces can be. And, uh, and then really uh, worked in the public sector for a couple of years. Um, in, in Hudson County, New Jersey, Hoboken, Jersey City, doing some work there. And uh, really wasn't until grad school, quite frankly, that I had a, an interest in specifically housing finance. And then affordable housing is just a, is just a, a niche area that I don't think that many people get into. Um, I, my path to it is, quite frankly, being in, I guess, the right place at the right time or asking the right question at the right time. Uh, I, I, quite frankly, took a class called PPD, Public Private Development, and uh, we had a guest lecturer one day who happened to be Larry Curtis, the president of our company. Oh. And and uh, Larry gave this this presentation about how tax credit work, tax credits work. And I'm probably, 
probably all of my answers so far have been paraphrasing Larry's <laughs> lecture. If I really think about it from, uh, I don't know, almost eight years ago now. And, uh, and I, uh, Larry put up a map of where wind development does business and the state of New Jersey was not filled in. And I, as a Jersey guy, I took, uh, I took particular offense to that. So I, yeah. I grabbed him in the lunch line afterwards and said, what's the, what's the beef with New Jersey? And he goes, no, no beef. Well, actually, Larry being Larry turned around and handed me a business card and said, do you have an internship, which is just the kind of guy he is. So, oh, cool. you know, it's, and, and now we're doing a bunch of business in New Jersey. So it's, it's a fun full circle story, but it, I think, uh, more, again, predominantly my interest was just more in, in urban areas and the creation of, of space and sort of all those things interrelate and found myself on the path to housing and haven't looked back since. Do you think having, I mean, I've, I've heard of urban study degrees. They sound fascinating. I don't really know what it is. I mean, do you think, what, what do you do in that? Like, do you think it really, I mean, I'll say that I know developers can be anyone from like, you know, guys going to great schools to guys who didn't graduate high school can be developers too. Right. I mean, it can, there's no, the barrier yeah. for entry into development is pretty, you know, it's all walks of life. Yell to jail as they say, but is it a, uh, I mean, do you think having that background in urban studies was beneficial? Did you learn a lot? Yeah, no, unbelievably beneficial. I think it's, it, it, if nothing else, it taught me how all of these differing worlds are interrelated and they all, they all connect to one another. So public policy decisions at uh, the legislative level in New Jersey and things that are being decided in DC quite literally impact how a building gets built in Tinton Falls, New Jersey, or how a building gets built in Rochester, New York. And so a lot of urban studies is about, I actually originally was looking into, it was a, focused on transportation, but you're looking at policy, finance, economics, design, and then ultimately people and how people use these spaces, live in these spaces, work in these spaces. So I, I found it unbelievably interesting and and then you know with an urban studies degree uh, or urban planning degree i've got buddies from grad school who work in for, work for mayors of big cities uh, friends who are international right now helping advise on transportation projects i've got friends working for local cdcs and cities doing really boots on the ground work so it's a pretty all-encompassing uh education which i i thought was really fun at the time informative at the time and super applicable to what I do now because no two days for me are the same in a row. Well, pre pre COVID, I can say that. <laughs> now it's a little, I'm, 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 I'm BSing a little bit if I say that. You got but, dressed up in a button down shirt. It was very nice. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, but tip, I mean, tip literally, there's days where one day I'm the core of a day is going to present a project in front of a community meeting. The next day, it's giving a pitch to a potential equity investor. The next day, it's going to, you know, beat up some RGC and subs on a deal to have them move the project along further. And the next day, it's doing a design charrette and giving giving advice to our architect about how to make things more efficient. Um, so it's really ultimately our job is to be the multi multidisciplinary thinker who understands why does that design decision impact this finance decision and why does that matter for the community at large and you keep telling me that this fence is super important. Why is this fence super important? It costs a lot of money. And it's because I remember the neighbor who was in the community meeting that said, I will, I will veto this project and make your life a living hell if you don't put that fence up. So mm -hmm. 
and so from that perspective, the urban planning background was was extremely helpful just to think about how all these how the the qualitative, the quantitative, the political dynamics all all ultimately are critical to make a, a really successful project. Does it feel cool to or rewarding to be doing this in like kind of your own backyard where you kind of grew up? Like you're like shaping the community and how it looks and um yeah, no, I I think it's you know, in some ways it's scary. It's like I, you know, I God forbid I ever do a project in my hometown. I, I'm, I'm probably, I probably, I don't know if I have the chutzpah for it, but you know, it's, but it does make you think about every project we do is in somebody's hometown. It's in somebody's backyard. Um, you know, and NIMBY is an often used phrase, but we like to do projects where we're getting, you know, getting people to welcome us into their, into their hometowns. And, and some of that is by the nature of the projects themselves. We, we, we just closed on a, a deal in, in New Jersey building 70 units of housing for veterans with a set aside for homeless veterans and a set aside for female veterans. And it's just, you know, it's with wraparound services. We're partnered with an awesome nonprofit soldier on out of Western Massachusetts who's giving services and supports and case management. So it's, you do something like that and, and you're, you're shaping the community and, and that's literally changing lives. If, you know, those are, seven individuals who desperately need housing and, you know, we're fortunate enough to provide the ability for that to happen. So we, it, it certainly is rewarding. Every project has, you know, a positive story. And my favorite thing is when we do ribbon cuttings, when we're done with a project, you know, I'll get up there and give my spiel and how great this was. And we won all these awards and enterprise green communities and this, that, and the other thing. And then, our CEO, everyone will give great speeches and politicians will give great, great speeches, but the best speaker, at every one of these projects is the person who lives at the property. And yeah. there's nothing better than when we go do a school building and someone's like, I went to this school 40 years ago and now I live here. It's the coolest <laughs> thing in the world. It's like, I am, my locker is across from, uh, that's where I, you know, where I smoked my first cigarette is right there. And it's like th- those kind of stories of people like, you know, literally living in the community saying how important this is for them in some ways, you know, this could change somebody's lives, letting somebody live in a, a neighborhood that, they perhaps couldn't afford to live in, giving opportunities to their children to be in a high-performing school district that they may have not had the opportunity to be in, but for this affordable housing. No, this, I mean that's it. Definitely, it definitely makes the industry we're in that much more rewarding. And you worked for Hudson County at the Division of Planning. I mean, what what does that entail? Does that you think that was very helpful too for to getting into development? Yeah. Yeah, no, it, was, it definitely was. I learned a lot about how the the public sector thinks and works and operates. Uh, got to peek behind the curtain because you know, well, you'll often hear people in the real estate world uh, harp about the red tape and the bureaucracy of things. And I think it was helpful just to see that th- things are red tape and bureaucratic. Sometimes they're red tape and bureaucratic just for the sake of being red tape and bureaucratic, and that is what it is. But other times it's because there's actual policy implications and there's people really working really hard on the public sector and it's it's not in their control or there's politics at play. So it was definitely really helpful to see behind the scenes on a lot of that stuff. And then I got to work on a lot of really awesome projects centered around, I mean, Hudson County is one of the densest urban places in, yeah. in the country, has some of the, the densest municipalities in the country. So really uh, and and rapidly gentrified. You live in Jersey City or Hoboken at the time? Yeah, I lived in uh, I lived in Hoboken at the time and uh and worked in Secaucus. So it's a 
a really dynamic community. There's so much development happening. There's, so, you know, yeah. it's a lot of pressures at play. There's people who have been in the city for years who obviously they're facing, you know, rapid rent rise. So honestly, there's a place where affordable housing is in high demand. We, we did a project, uh, Wynn did a project in Jersey City um, now almost five years ago. Uh, was actually my one of my first projects that I completed with Wynn. And we did a, a project right outside of downtown Jersey City that was actually affordable housing that was expiring and was gonna was set to pay, potentially become market rate housing. And we worked with the city, we worked with the state to preserve the housing. There's actually three, four, and five bedroom units, which oh, good luck finding four and five bedroom units in <laughs> downtown Jersey City. It's yeah. not gonna happen. And again, the cost of the cost of building those units new would have been just unfeasible astronomical would never happen so rightfully so the the city the county and the state identified losing losing this housing is we, we just can't let it happen we got to throw the resources behind behind a project like this to figure out ways to uh to preserve this housing because there's real families i mean there's literally people who have lived there for 30 some odd years intergenerational families that have had the opportunity to get a good education and have employment in downtown jersey city um, as they've you know grown up, they've left their housing and and it's but it's provided a lot of upward mobility for folks. So luckily, the again in that case, it's a good example of of a project that the state and city and everyone recognized pretty quickly. This is important. We should put some resources behind it. So that was a four percent deal with the gap filled by a bunch of creative sources that uh, came to us from the state. Do you ever partner with other? Um affordable housing companies that something that happens when you guys like can't fill the gap, you guys could come together and kind of figure it out. Yeah. Well, we, we've definitely partnered. We've done joint ventures with other developers. Um, often those with more local expertise working on a deal right now in uh, Patterson, New Jersey, where we've, we've got, uh, we've got unbelievably strong uh, local development partners there. And, and certainly we've, we partner with nonprofit and CDCs all the time. Um, we also partner with housing authorities all the time. We do a lot of work. Um, a lot of rad work with uh, different housing authorities. Um, and what does rad those, mean? Are you just mean rad? Like, hey, dude, rad. Yeah, rad. Yeah, no, I know you're in, you're the Cal, you're the California guy. Yeah, rad. <laughs> yeah. No. We say rad all the time over here. Every, yeah, every other word. Rental assistance demonstration, I believe, is the act. Yeah, and, and call me out because I'll I speak in the <laughs> affordable housing uh, different language <laughs> of jargon where it's uh, you get in your own world and, and you forget that you're speaking. Is there one work. called like bail and like? Dude, no, there there's like that? <laughs> there's probably uh, there's probably something for everything you could think of. Um, and no, but this this there's basically two components of the the rad program. Pretty forward thinking HUD uh, program. Uh, I don't know when it actually kicked off, but most of them are winding down. But there was Rad One, which was basically allowed housing authorities to partner with private developers and do uh, pretty large scale recapitalizations and refinancings of their portfolios. Uh, basically get a lot of resources into public housing that otherwise probably couldn't have couldn't have happened if just the housing authority was doing it by themselves or just the private developer was doing them by themselves and then rad 2 was a was a second component of that which was a lot of legacy programs like the old there was a old 236 program from 40 years ago where you'd get uh, below interest rate first mortgages and everyone said oh well let's not worry about what happens in 40 years and then <laughs> now it's 40 now it's 40 years later and they're like oh my god what's gonna happen now uh and basically they put forward a program that allowed a lot of those those old legacy programs to uh to preserve themselves and and parlay that into additional resources to again 
put a uh, put eighty thousand dollars of capital upgrade envelopes upgrade interiors ener- upgrade energy efficiency but ultimately still preserve the affordable housing which I, in some ways that's you're getting all the positives of beautification and energy efficiency without some of the call it negative detrimental effects of gentrification you're not displacing people you're keeping people in in their homes and you're still helping better the community and better the local development by you know improving the property so done done a lot of those um actually a great program that we did uh most of the deals were a couple hundred units at a time so pretty large scale um Mm -hmm. opportunities to make a pretty big impact you i mean how did you was it overwhelming or not overwhelming intimidating when you got into this i mean you're talking like you know, you're talking a whole foreign language to a lot of people, the stuff you're saying right now, which is fine, which is great. I mean, it's super, it just seems very, very complicated. There's a lot of factors. And it's like when you got into it, when you were, you know, started as an assistant project manager in 2014 and people were starting, did you know any of this stuff or like, how did you, how did you learn all this? No, I mean, some of it, I, I some of it I picked up from a couple of coursework I did, but I don't think that there's the, the industry, the acronyms, the way our underwriting models work—you really gotta, you gotta learn by doing. Um, and I've, I, you know, learn by doing. And that could be on the public so- side or the private side. Um, you know, just getting exposure to the way that these sources and uses work in these deals. But no, I, I'd be lying to you if I told you I walked in the door knowing what, you know, ten percent of these acronyms were. But I was fortunate enough to have great mentors in the place that I worked. Um, part of the reason I, I love Win is that we're a you know, a big company with a national scale, but our development team is pretty lean and it's pretty, uh, you know, Gilbert and Larry and Adam are in the day to day. And if I have questions, they respond and been great mentors. So uh, quite frankly, it's just been fortunate to, to learn from, in my opinion, learn from the best and pick up a lot of these things as you go. And then you just, you just got to be a sponge and you got to absorb it as you do it and use it for the next deal. You know, why do you think, what, what do you think has made you more successful and like climb up the ladders? Cause I mean, behind the curtain, I asked someone much higher up, not much higher up, higher up at when, who I knew. And he said, you should talk to David. He's the one you should, you should do this podcast with. Um, I mean, what do you think? Why are, why do, out of all the people at win, why would he point you out and be like, he, David's the guy like, you know, like I, obviously, I, obviously they think very highly of you or, you know, like, <laughs> Like, I, I think they think about, I'm, I'm the podcast guy. I love podcasts and I've got a, <laughs> and I think my, my, my deep voice. So it's so appropriate, but very, no, very I, good voice. But what, think, what, uh, you're obviously a star win. I mean, they really like you. So, I mean, what, what do you think it is about you that, that, that makes them think so highly of you and like have no, caused you think, to be so successful? I don't think there's anything, there's no, you know, secret sauce I'm giving away and it's not even going to be that interesting of an answer, quite frankly, but I think it's just, you know, taking in everything that you can from each deal, I'd say it's it's working well with people. And that sounds obvious and trivial, but I mean that from all sides of it, when to the public sector, to the private sector, it's, in my opinion, I, we, I've, I've had deals that have literally happened because somebody on the government side who has no necessarily, some would argue, no skin in the game, went above and beyond because they like working with me because I treat them with respect and kindness and fairness. And, and, you know, I don't think that's all the answer, but I think it's, it's working, working hard. Um, uh, I'm, I'm going to keep quoting Larry because Larry's got a lot of great quotes. He's, he's the <laughs> quote master, but I think he says, well, it's not what you do from nine to five. It's what you do from five to nine. So there's definitely, mm-hmm. there's definitely a component of that, which is, you know, the, 
definitely work hard, play hard. We definitely, we definitely network and we definitely like people like doing business with us because they like, you know, our attitude, our commitment to the communities that we work in, our commitment to doing great projects. And then, uh, no, I think it's, it's, it's learning from each deal. It's learning from anyone that you identify who knows more than you and picking their brains and, and not being shy about taking someone else's wisdom and using it. Um, cause it's, it's amazing uh, to the Hudson County point. There's, there's projects I've worked on now where old, you know, old colleagues or people I, I vaguely remember from 10, 12 years ago, um, that are coming up now and be, are there are resources on opportunities now, you know, that, I would never have thought of ever working with this person when I left to move to Boston for grad school. I, I didn't ever think that I'd be working with somebody again. And I think uh, in, in this business, you know, you know, it. it's, it's, it's all about networking, but it's all about networking in the right way and showing people what you can do with your project. So, yeah, I don't know. Again, I don't, I don't know that I have a, a specific answer and hopefully the, again, a lot of my success is attributed to the, the great team around me. So I just, I work with, I work with awesome people on the construction side, awesome people on the sustainability and green side. And I, uh, I, I, I use them. My success is built upon them. Um, so a lot of kudos to the, the folks around you. And I think that's part of it is when you, when you surround yourself with the right people, when you find somebody who you think is, is, is great, don't lose them. We, uh, we go out of our way to make sure we try to retain, retain folks that are clearly talented and on the rise, even if they might not know everything. Um, somebody who's got that fire in their belly to, to do more, um, you know, just put them on your team. That's awesome. Um, and I mean, some of these people listening to this podcast are probably trying to get into development or learn more about affordable housing development. I mean, you went back to school, you went to a little school called Harvard. I think some of us, I heard of it. Some of us probably heard of it um, up in Boston or Cambridge, right? Was it Boston or Cambridge? I don't know. Cambridge. Yeah. Cambridge. Um, do you think going back to school was very helpful to you? I mean, what was that? If you want to get into development, would you, and someone's not really. For me personally, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was, it, I mean, educationally, absolutely. I think learning from my classmates. I mean, I was surrounded by some of the smartest people I've ever met from different walks of life from all around the country and the globe. And that was a huge resource. Uh, I mean, quite literally, Again, my yeah. president of my current company was a guest lecturer at a class. Yeah, so it's like, it worked out for you. Yeah, I know. It's like, you know, you got to, you know, put yourself in the right place at the right time. You know, I guess in some hands that was a lucky situation, but I think uh, often lucky situations are what catapult people into positions that they're happy about. Um, so, no, for me, it was for all of those reasons, it was one of the, better decisions I've ever made in my life was going back to grad school. Just, uh, I got to do an unbelievable trip to Mexico city and work with the Mexican government on an affordable housing project. Uh, just a whole, so many opportunities that I've never would have had exposure to, but for going back to school and, um, and the opportunities I provided. Awesome, man. Well, you have a, thanks for your story. I mean, it's been great. Um, look forward to, Seeing, I mean, yeah. What what are your plans in the next five years? What's what's wind doing? Are you are you going to develop all Jersey? I mean, how's the map looking Jersey right now? The map looks the map looks great, man. I mean, there's uh, we've we've got a, a healthy pipeline. We're always trying to grow it. So uh, 
Yeah, I, I wouldn't be a I wouldn't be a, a real estate person, and, and I would be I would be getting scolded by my uh, colleagues and bosses if I didn't make a pitch for if you've got a if you've got an opportunity if you know your old mill your old school uh, or you know the right <laughs> land site uh, send them our way we're we're always growing um, but no we want you know we we have a, a great base we've we've shown what we can do in in up and down the eastern seaboard uh, we want to keep doing more uh, fortunately affordable housing. Uh, is is doing okay in the, in the COVID world? I mean, I think there's definitely some legislative actions that could could make things a lot better. Um, there's some things happening in DC. There's some proposed legislation which would increase the number of low-income housing tax credits available. There's one called, you know, we call it the fixed four percent credit, which uh, basically locks the credit rate for that four percent credit we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, um, which brings a lot of additional resources to deals. I think one thing in our world is we've we've basically halted evictions, um, and there's certainly a growing collections issue in the affordable housing space, really in all residential real estate. So I think there's there's been some su- support, financial support, um, to help help people pay the rent that they were unable to pay, and I think uh, more of that is necessary. We, what we definitely don't want to happen is great news, COVID's. COVID's done. We have a vaccine and now we have an eviction crisis on our hands yeah, or yeah. an affordable. I mean, we are, we've been in an affordable housing crisis for decades. So it's, and I think this is only going to exacerbate it again. People have less, I think we're, we'll see ultimately economically, but in there's potential that people have less buying power than ever, but I don't think that costs to build and construct housing are going to be getting any cheaper anytime soon. Um, you know, and we were as susceptible to anyone any industry, we had factories closed down that were producing, you know, unique historic windows because of coronavirus. We had, you know, shipments from Italy and China that were delayed. So there's this industry has been hurt as much as any other one. But I think as a five-year outlook, we're I'm extremely optimistic. I'm an optimistic person by nature, but I really do think there's a there's a lot of room for growth as an industry, and I, and wind specifically, we're looking to do a lot more and I'm looking to do a lot more in New York, New Jersey and Connecticut specifically. What can an individual do like myself? I mean, obviously affordable housing is an issue in this country. Um, I, I live in the Bay area. It's like, yeah, yeah. insane. Um, what can we do? I mean, is there anything specifically we can do to help? Uh, get out and vote. There's certain pressures that build that I think lead our political actors in, in a certain way. And I think just, we're all hyper aware of the housing crisis. You know, me being in the New York City metro area and you being in the San Francisco metro area, uh, the affordable housing crisis has been has been there, and the, the demand for housing has been you know there for ages. And I think you know we got to build more. We got to we got to build more. We got to plug more gaps. We got to figure out ways to make the dollars stretch further. We got to help people get paid enough so that they can live in more housing. We got to get more creative with some of these housing programs right now. Most of them are geared around people, you know, households that make up to 60% of median income. Um, there was some great legislative change that brought in that up to 80% of median income. So I think recognizing that uh, affordable housing isn't just for those. There's certainly a huge need for those below 60% median income. Mm-hmm. But I think we're, what we're seeing is that it's, it's impossible to live in certain urban areas and parts of the country making... Uh, making call it median income, yeah. quite frankly. So, and I think, uh, I think just 
I won't tell you how to vote, but I think just, again, there's political pressures that uh, will help help lead some of these legislative changes that'll help, you know, at the state level, at the federal level, make a big difference in terms of how we continue to grow the affordable housing sector, how we continue to support building affordable housing. And what are your thoughts on religion? I'm kidding. All right. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, extremely interesting uh, story there. Now it's going to get a little more interesting. Are you ready for the hot seat? Uh-oh. What do we got? Let's get hot. The hot seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofits, startups, and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities reduce turnover and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com. K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. It is the summertime. You're probably sweltering in your, your house in New Jersey. Well, I did have, I did lose electricity for five days. So I was literally, <laughs> if you, if we had this call last week, I would have literally been sweltering when we had the call. So you could add a video with it too. Um, exactly. all right. These are the five questions, sometimes six that I ask all of my guests. Um, any books you recommend, whether it's uh, affordable housing, work, life, you name it. Yeah, definitely not work. I don't do much reading about affordable housing in terms of book form. Uh, what's the last great book I read? Oh, uh, this author Shay Serrano that I love, who writes. He's a he's a he's a fellow podcaster, Chris. He's oh, a uh, but he's a he's a a writer and specifically on sports and pop culture, and he does a. Uh, a series called blank and other things. And he did a movies and other things uh, and movies and other things was one of the funniest things I've ever read. Um, it's, it's like an illustrated book. It's a, it's a light read, <laughs> but with a lot of thought behind it, he talks about the, uh, a lot of sports, a lot of movies. So if you're a, a pop culture fan, it's a, I think we all need a little bit of levity in, in coronavirus world right. right now. So Shea Serrano is a great source of, uh, of getting some enjoyment out of, uh, out of this crazy world we're in. Jay Serrano. I love it. I love movies. I love sports. So cool. Um, you're a big podcast listener. How about podcast recommendations? Uh, so part, yeah, I, I mean, I probably the big picture, I like, I'm a big movie guy. So it's a, a podcast about, well, typically it's interesting. They usually it's a gearing up for the Oscars mm -hmm. is usually what the podcast is about. And they analyze movies on a weekly basis. And, uh, Right now, we don't even know if they're going to have an Oscars. Yeah. Haven't been to a movie theater, so actually, a lot of the podcast has been about the the state of the movie industry in general and uh, interesting things to learn about in terms of how production shutdowns impact the industry at large. So I find that stuff fascinating. I'm just a uh, I, I love movies, TVs, pop culture. So uh, big picture, definitely, definitely check that one out. I do not know that one. I know I'm reading. There's one that I, I do with the with movies with admin admin Burke whatever he's a yeah yeah he's the yeah, that, sports announcer guy who does the one with 
movies. I forget. That's right. Yeah. Big, big picture. I mean, it's the, some of the ringer podcast network. So it's a big picture and uh, the watch is their sort of TV counterpart with Chris Ryan and uh, Andy Greenwald, which is also, they just, you know, pick a popular TV show and, and roll with it. Now, speaking of popular TV shows, I have, uh, I, I didn't ask this question pre COVID, but during COVID I'm, I'm kind of running, I'm running low on TV shows. Do you have any uh, TV show recommendations? Yeah, so let me let me think here. So I, we the two things we've been watching. My wife and I have been been binging uh, two very different things. We were watching a TV show called Alone, uh, which is on, it's a History Channel show, show where insane concepts kind of sounds like Survivor, but is not anything like Survivor. They take ten like survivalist experts and put them out into the wilderness with their, there's no camera crew. They film themselves. And whoever lasts the longest wins a half million dollars or a million dollars, depending on the season. And I mean, brutal, but feels kind of appropriate for uh, the (laughs) the quarantine just to be like, sometimes I do feel like I'm talking into a a GoPro. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's like, but so that one's great. And then uh, we watched a a wild uh, German time travel show called Dark um, that had its third season on Netflix, where uh, uh, unbelievable show, high attention to detail. Watch it in German with subtitles. It's terrible when it's dubbed. <laughs> and uh, but wild, wild time travely things. If you're into mind bending kind of shows, it's like uh, everybody ends up being their own mother by the end of the show. Spoiler alert. Uh, Those Germans, man. That's how it is, right? <laughs> uh, what do you like to do outside of work? So, uh, well, when I'm, I'd say trying to get outside a bit because I've just told you how much I like sitting in front yeah, of the TV, exactly. which. I think I read a tweet that it was like, by the end of uh, COVID, you either be a, a, a hunk, a chunk, or a drunk. And uh, there's two of those three that I might be in. It's definitely, it doesn't involve me getting a six pack anytime <laughs> soon. So I've been trying to force myself to go outside. So I, uh, I play basketball, which haven't really been able to do that so much right now. So my wife and I have taken up hiking um, oh, nice. just together. We did a trip to uh, Acadia National Park, uh, Bar Harbor, Maine last week, actually. And it was great just to, we're trying to figure out what can we do to to get outside of our hometown and our home state, not necessarily be in a, a hot zone, spiking COVID place, not get an airplane, but feel like we really took a trip. Yeah. So I recommend just getting out into nature and uh, hiking and drinking great double IPAs at the end of the day. I think this is whole thing's for is at least forcing me to explore like my local area. I've been going places that I mean, I've lived in the Bay Area for 10 years and uh, I have... Yeah, I'm exploring all these places I've I've yet to, for some reason, not go to. So it's been kind of cool. For same that. same here. No, and and trying to like you know trying to support local restaurants. Everybody's hurting, and they're hurting as bad as anyone. So trying to find new places, mom and pop places that we never heard of, and grab takeout, whatever, and uh, definitely eating our way through the quarantine. Now, what advice would you give to your 20 year old self? Advice for my 20 year old self. So I would say, uh, sleep sleep a little bit more just just a little bit though because i think uh my lack of sleep and 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 i think that's not i don't want to imply that i i'm just working hard i definitely have a a work hard play hard personality but i would definitely say sleep a little bit more um you'll i'll probably come to my my 60 year old self will probably come to thank my 20 year old self by saying sleep a little bit more now this is a i am a recruiter so uh, got to ask one question. What do you look for when you're hiring people and, or looking for partners? Like, is it anything, it doesn't necessarily have to be a hard skill set, but maybe like a soft skill as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, in our industry, it's it's somebody who's got that proactive mentality is is super self-disciplined. The way that we approach it at Win is there's effectively a one person chain of command. I mean, you're you're running the show from from looking for acquisitions of properties to doing the political meetings to doing the underwriting models to giving design inputs to so somebody who's got the ability to take that initiative on and 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 nobody knows all those things so learn somebody who shows the ability to absorb and learn things and has that hardworking personality um, again that's that's sort of a, a general resume answer everybody's hardworking and creative on a on their resume but I would say in terms of things that could differentiate you in our world having a you know a, a high high Excel skills, showing comfort, speaking in front of a group of people, quick on your feet. There's always a circumstance where you're going to be surprised by a question, um, surprised by an answer, quite (laughs) frankly, and have to have to pick up and roll with it. So, and those are things that we probably get out of an interview process as much as anything. So, you know, we look for people who've got the resume skills on paper, but then a lot of it is garnered from meeting someone face to face and seeing uh and seeing their personality type seeing if they're a good fit for this industry because again it's a it's a unique but again unbelievably rewarding unbelievably fun uh i love what i do i love the industry we're in um so somebody's looking at thinking thinking about the affordable housing industry i would say you know if if you find it interesting go for it um uh, try to find a mentor for sure i think that's uh somebody who who you can learn from and and Quite frankly, ride up the corporate ladder because if uh, yeah. <laughs> in, in my in my case again, I've had great leadership, great mentors who I've been able to uh, to learn a lot from and put me in the position I am now. Well, it definitely shows it comes across that you're passionate about it because it sounds like you love it and you you kind of like eat it up like a you know like a soak it up like a sponge. So that's awesome. Hundred percent. Well, David Ginsburg, VP at Wind Companies, thank you for your time. That was an amazing story. Look forward to keeping in touch. Awesome. Great to, great, to, great to talk with you and uh, be good. And I hope you enjoy the rest of, uh, enjoy to what extent you can the rest of quarantine and we all make it through this thing okay. All right, buddy. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the TBG Real Estate Podcast. Please visit us online at tbg-realestate.com or on Instagram at tbg.realestate. Until next time, have a great week.